As many of you know, the book that we're in this morning is Nehemiah chapter 5. If I could have you turn to that this morning. Well, if you haven't been with us through the book of Nehemiah, we've seen in the past couple weeks that Nehemiah was battling, if you were, the enemy from outside the camp. Now, the enemy's name were Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. And the enemy had different weapons that they were using to attack God's people and to try to stop the work that God had called them to. And if you remember, the first weapon was ridicule. They spoke against God's people. They spoke against the work of God. And they were hoping that by ridiculing the work, ridiculing God's people, that it would slow down the progress. Well, that didn't work. So then they used intimidation. And intimidation is basically saying they're going to harm you. And they started to to warn God's people that they would hurt them, hoping to stop the work. Well, that didn't work either. And so the goal of ridicule intimidation is to cause discouragement. They wanted God's people to be so discouraged that it would slow down the work. And typically when people get discouraged, the next phase is what? Fear. Now, fear exaggerates reality. And it's a weapon often that the enemy will use to hinder God's work, the progress of what God wants us to do. So we dealt with that in the last two weeks, this enemy from outside the camp. But this morning, we're going to talk about the enemy within. The devil is so sly. And if he can't get you from outside, he's going to try to worm his way in, and he's going to try to get us within the own camp. Sometimes the enemy will use God's people to hurt God's people. Sometimes we're we're our own worst enemy. And so this morning, we're going to see in this text this morning, what was the problem, but also what is the solution? Let's take a look at the first thing, the problem. Some of God's people took advantage of others because they had no fear of God. Some of God's people took advantage of others because they did not for the Lord of glory. Some of the people there in Nehemiah's day, they no longer had what I might call a healthy fear of God. They no longer had an awe and a wonder of the Lord Lord of glory. Let's look at verses 1 through 5. It says, Now there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. And there were others who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses that we might get grain because of the famine. Also, there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and on our vineyards. Now, our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers and our children like their children. Yet behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters are forced into bondage already. And we are helpless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. So there was an outcry of the people. They come to Nehemiah with a complaint. God's own people are harming God's people. And there were three groups of people that were being hurt by this. First, in verse 2, there was a group that they, they owned no land, but they needed food. They would be the poorest of the group. Then we see in verse 3 that there was a second group, and these are the landowners that had to mortgage their land to get food. And then you had a last group, and these were those who were being charged taxes that were too high, and they were forced to borrow money to pay for the taxes. But ultimately, I want to start where the problem really lied. It's a hard issue. 
And the heart issue is the people had drifted from a fear of God. They no longer had an awe and a wonder, a reverence for holy God. And it's a warning for us as God's people today. I want to show you this in the text. First, we see it in verse 9. In this verse, Nehemiah is scolding the people for their sin, his own fellow brothers. Look at verse 9. Again, I said, the thing which you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations and our enemy? And the second time he uses this term, the fear of God, is at the end of verse 15. And he's explaining, even though he's governor, he could take advantage of the people. He doesn't. Why? It says at the end, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. When you look at a text, you want to find out what we call the big idea, the core. This is the core in this text. The people of God had drifted away from the fear of God, and and that caused them to do things that dishonored God. And we as God's people need to see this today and say, where am I? Do I truly have a healthy fear of the living God? I want to give you what that is, a definition, what it means to fear God. So often when we look at definitions on the fear of God, it's it's explained as respect or reverence for God, and it is, but I think it's much more than that. Now, the Bible, when it speaks about the fear of the Lord, over 300 times it uses that term, the fear of God, speaking about God. And Nehemiah's people, he is calling them back to reverence. He is calling them back to proper worship, to a holy God. Now, the Bible, when it uses the word fear, it means fear. It does not necessarily mean terror, but it means a healthy understanding and fear of who God is. He's God Almighty. He is the God of wonder. I mean, put yourself in a Jewish mindset. You know, they're thinking about thunder and earthquakes and lightning on Mount Sinai. They understand the power of a holy God. And Nehemiah had that. Remember, his foundation is the God of heaven. He's calling them back to that wonder. Now, also the fear of God, when you look at Scripture, the fear of God is spoken of as the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. As a matter of fact, Psalms 111.10, Proverbs 1.7, and Proverbs 9.10 all say that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and or of knowledge. And so the fear of God is the key to wisdom. And the Bible teaches that those who fear God are going to be much wiser in their understanding of who God is and how to worship Him because of that fear. The fear of God is the key to the knowledge of God Himself. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 1 says, My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, then verse 5 says, Then you will discern the fear of God and discover the knowledge of God. The true fear of the Lord that will drive us to the Word of God. Having a proper understanding of who God is, it will drive us to seek, to worship Him in the way that He demands and deserves to be worshipped. But how should we fear God? Martin Luther, he, he gives an explanation of two types of fear, servile fear and filial fear. Servile fear is the kind of fear that a prisoner has for his executioner. 
It's the kind of fear that a slave would have for a tormentor that has whips and chains. It's a terror. It's a fear of harm. Peter Kraft says this about the fear of God. It is not servile fear. Fear that my enemy will harm me or fear that my cruel master will take advantage of me. It is awe, worship, and adoration of God as my friend but not as my chum. It includes the understanding that God can be terrible even though He is good. Terrible meaning not bad, but great and high and holy. Servile fear is not the the fear of God that we're talking about here. Filial fear. Filial is descended from the Latin philis, meaning son, philia, meaning daughter. It refers to the fear that that a child would have for his or her father. Luther was thinking about a child and and the tremendous respect and love that they have for their father. And that love and respect for that father, it, it guides them and helps them to want to honor them by their actions. It motivates them to, in everything they do and say, that they would somehow honor this father that they love so much. Commentator John Murray says this, he says, there is dread or terror of the Lord and there is the fear of reverential awe. There is the fear that consists of being afraid. It elicits anguish and terror. There is the fear of reverence. It elicits confidence and love. And we must remember that the dread of judgment will never generate within us the love of God or the hatred of sin itself. Punishment has of itself no regenerating or converting power. The fear of God in which godliness consists is the fear which constrains adoration and love, is the fear which consists in awe, reverence, honor, worship. And this is where Nehemiah is calling the people out here in this text. They had drifted away from this idea of awe and reverence, honor, worship. And because they drifted away, it impacted the way that they lived. a matter of fact, they lived a way that actually was worse than the people outside the camp of Jerusalem. They no longer respected the God of glory. They no longer had awe for the living God. They worshiped themselves. And when you drift away from this idea of holy fear, for the believer, you can be just like them. We have to be very careful. The fear of God is often lacking in the Christian church. Matter of fact, this understanding of a, of a holy fear, of a reverence for God, of awe and wonder for who He is, is sometimes not even found within the circles of Christian talk. Now, the fear of God is not that God is our chum, our buddy, but we do have the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And so we can draw close to Him as a child of God. He's holy and awesome, but yet we can worship Him as we would worship our loving Father. And we're called to do that. And the people here had drifted from that. They had drifted from the thinking where Hebrews chapter 10, 31 tells us it's a frightening thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And although it's a frightening thing because of Christ, 
We can draw to Him knowing that we are loved and cared for. See, as a sinful people, we must never forget that we only stand before God because of His grace, that He's been so kind to us, and He's opened this way for us to have this living relationship with Him. And we're grateful for the Son. It's interesting when you look at the Scriptures, though, when the Scriptures speak about the fear of the Lord, it actually talks about it as a positive thing, a good thing. For example, in Genesis chapter 42, verse 18, Joseph, he wins his brother's trust because he declares that he is a God-fearing man. In Exodus 1.17, Moses' life was spared as a child because the Hebrew midwives, they feared God more than they feared Pharaoh and they would not take the life of the children. Moses chose leaders to help him on the basis that they feared God and they wouldn't take bribes. And I could go on and on, but the fear of the Lord is a good and a healthy thing for God's children. And some of the problems that arose here in Nehemiah's day were there because the Jewish people, they no longer had a reverence for God. They no longer had a fear of God. And because of that, it caused them to begin to act as if they didn't know Him at all. Now, remember last week we talked about what Nehemiah's foundation was. His foundation was the God of heaven. And everything that he did, it was framed with that mindset. I I, I kind of put it like this. It kept him in the guardrails. He was safe as long as he worshiped the God of heaven. But when you stop understanding who God is and you make a God the way that you want him, I even heard somebody once say that he's my homeboy. God is his homeboy. No, he's not. God is holy and awesome and worthy of all praise and honor. Side note, the working on the walls didn't cause the problems. It kind of exasperated them, added to them, but they weren't the cause. There were three things that that were causing the issues of the people. In verses 2 and 3, there was a famine. A famine had hit the land, particularly at the end of verse 3. It says, we were mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses that we might get grain because of the famine. Now, you need to understand, because the building is the walls, a lot of Jews came into Jerusalem that normally weren't there, so there were a lot more mouths to feed. On on top of that, there wasn't enough food. Then a famine hit, probably because there was a drought, and so there was a real difficulty in getting food. There weren't enough crops to go around. Second, there were high taxes being demanded by the king. That's in verse 4. We've borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now, when the king wants taxes, you've got to pay those taxes or off with your head. And so they had to do whatever they had to do to pay those taxes. But the problem is, even some of the Jews that were collecting the taxes also buffered in a little extra money. They were stealing from their own people. Third, there were creditors giving loans with high and inappropriate interest rates. And it got so bad that in verse 5, literally they had to put their own kids and enslave them. Look at verse 5, it says, And now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers and our children like their children. Yet behold, we are forcing our sons and daughter to be slaves, and some of our daughters are forced into bondage already, and we're helpless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. And so these Jewish creditors were foreclosing on the land as payment, and when the land ran, ran out, then they said, We want your kids too. This all happened because they had drifted away from a true worship and an awe of who God is. I got to ask you, be careful. Where's your heart before God? 
Is he your homeboy? Or is he the true and living God? That you understand that you can only stand before his presence because of the grace and the blood of Christ. Because of this lack of reverence for God, the people started disobeying God's commands even though they knew them. Deuteronomy 23, 19 says, You shall not charge interest on your countrymen, interest on money, food, or anything that may be loaned at interest. That's what usury means, means interest. It's kind of like this. You need money, okay, I'll give you a thousand bucks, but by the way, you've got to pay me next month two thousand bucks, and if you don't, I get your kids or I get your land. They were ripping off their own people. They, they had lost sight of what it meant when God says, don't do that. They forgot the Word of God. And that's often what will happen when you no longer have a fear of God. You forget the Word of God. When a person no longer has awe and reverence and the fear of the Lord, they'll become selfish. And naturally, they'll start to become greedy and stingy and the devil is so sly. Because the enemy outside wasn't getting in, and so what does he do? He starts speaking to the hearts of the people within. And he starts using God's own people against God's own people. And again, this is a warning for us as God's people today. We have to watch our hearts. Because people of Christ that have no holy fear, they will live a life that dishonors God in such a way that people will look at them and it will bring shame on the name of the church, on the name of the people and their family. And it discredits God's holy word. And Paul warned about this in 2 Timothy chapter 3. I really want you to see this and and look at the way Paul explains how people will be in the last days. 2 Timothy 3 verses 1 through 4 says, but realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, we read that and we think, oh man, those people outside the church, I cannot believe they would be like that. But listen to me, sometimes, particularly people that drift from worshiping the true and living God, they will act just like that. And that's what happened with these Jews. They became lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They no longer had a fear and a reverence for the holy God of Israel. Now, when I think about this idea about the fear of God, I used to think about it this way, when, particularly when I was a new Christian. You know, when, I, when you drive your car and you look in the mirror and there's a policeman, best behavior. <laughs> Ten and two, right? <laughs> Slow through every light, and, right? And so I kind of looked at God kind of like a policeman when I'm driving my car. But I think a better picture is kind of like a teenager when they first get their license, and some of you might be living that experience right now. But when they first get their license, and, and she's, she's driving her car, and all of a sudden she looks up in her rearview mirror, and all of a sudden she sees her dad behind her. Okay, 10 and 2, right? And so at first it makes her kind of upset that her dad would actually be following her. She can't believe it. But then I think, she begins to think, my dad really cares about me. And he's just doing it because he loves me, and, and he wants to make sure that I'm driving safely. It's not that he's just trying to keep note. No, he cares. He wants to make sure I get safe all the way home. And that's the way we should look at the fear of the Lord as well. 
God wants to make sure we make it all the way to heaven, guys. He loves us that much. So the first problem that we see right here is the problem. Some of God's people took advantage of others because they had no fear of God. Second thing we see is the remedy, or you could call it the solution. Repent and walk in the fear of God. Repent and walk in the fear of God. When we mess up, when we make a mistake as God's people, we need to be honest with it before a holy God. Turn from it, that's called repentance, and begin to walk with Him. That's walking in the fear of God. Now, I want to start with verses 6 through 9. We're going to look at all, all the way down to verse 13, but let's start there. It says, Then I was very angry when I heard about their outcry in these words, and I consulted with myself and contended with the nobles and the rulers and said to them, You are exacting usury, each from his brother. Therefore, I held a great assembly against them. And I said to them, We, according to our ability, have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Now would you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? Then they were silent and could not find a word to say. And again I said, the thing which you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations and our enemies? So the, the reaction right here that we see with Nehemiah is what we call righteous anger. He's upset, and rightfully so. He sees what, what the people there in the city are doing to some of the, the, the fellow Jews, the brothers, that, that he was there to, to gather them together, to have them on mission, to serve God with power. And because of this indiscretion, the work on the walls had ceased. The enemy was winning at this point. And he has a right to, to be angry because they failed to honor the Word of God. I want you to notice with me a few verses. Exodus chapter 22, verse 25 says, If you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you are not to act as a creditor to them. You shall not charge him interest. Now, if you notice, it said there in Exodus 22, 25, my people. God's very serious how we treat his people. And particularly for the Jews, he says, you are not to extract interest now, if somebody has a need, you can help them, you can loan them money, but they only have to pay you back what they borrowed. No interest, no profit. And if you remember, I read Deuteronomy 23, 19, but I also want you to see verse 20. It says, you shall not charge interest to your countrymen, interest on money, food, or anything that may be loaned at interest. You may charge interest to a foreigner, but to your countrymen you shall not charge interest, so that the Lord your God may bless you and all that you undertake in the land which you were about to enter to possess. Nehemiah understood because of their behavior that the blessing of God could be pulled from the people. He understood that this was very serious. Now, now you can loan money to a foreigner with interest, but to your own people, you treat them fair. You show them love and respect. You honor God and His Word, and the people were not doing that. Matter of fact, they were to be distinct from the world. That people were to look at God's people and say, there's a difference that's different than we have here. They actually honor one another. Now also, in between Exodus and Deuteronomy is Leviticus. Leviticus 25, 39 says this, If a countryman of yours becomes so poor with regard to you that he sells himself to you, you shall not subject him to a slave service. He shall be with you as a hired man. And if he were a sojourner, he shall serve you until the year of Jubilee. 
So what was happening? They gave them their land. They're paying too high interest. Now they had to actually put their kids into slavery. Sin, sin, sin. And by the way, the year of Jubilee is every 50 years, by the law, the Jews were to free anybody who had enslaved themselves to a household or a servant. And also, anything you owed, you got it back. Debt was paid in full every 50 years. They'd been in the land almost 100 years, probably twice now. They did not honor the year of Jubilee. They were deeply in sin. And Nehemiah's calling them out. Enemy had gotten in the camp. So four things we see. It's not wrong to lend money to a non-Jew for interest. It is wrong to lend money. I mean, it is not wrong to lend money to a Jew, but it is wrong to demand interest for a loan from, from a Jew, and it's wrong to enslave a fellow Jew. And all these things they were doing and sinning against God. And so what Nehemiah does, he calls a meeting. He calls them together. He's going to confront them. Verse 7, I consulted with myself and contended with the nobles and the rulers and said to them, you're exacting usury each from his brother. Therefore, I held a great assembly against them. This idea of consulting with myself is really wise right here. What he does is he's really upset. He's going to say something that he's going to regret. He holds it back. And he thanks before he speaks. Wisdom. And so what does he tell them? Look again at verses 7 through 9. I consulted with myself, contended with the nobles and rulers, and said, you're exacting usury, which is interest, each from his brother. Therefore, I held a great assembly against him, and I said, we, according to our ability, have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Now would you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? Then they were silent and could not find a word to say. By the way, that's an example of when somebody is confronted with conviction. God's people were speechless. Verse 9 says, And again, the thing which you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? Now, the men who were hurting the people were the men with a lot of money. And they were exacting interest from people who really couldn't afford to give it back to them. They were responsible for oppression on the laborers. Now, money is just a tool. And God blesses people with money, but how we use that money as a good steward, it really matters to God, and, and we're responsible to God for our actions with it. In fact, as money, it's not a sin. The Bible says the love of money is a sin. But you had these rich people trying to get richer off the backs of the poor and the hurting and Nehemiah, he made three accusations. He says, you're charging interest to fellow Jews. That's wrong, verse 7. You're enforcing permanent slavery of the Jews. That's wrong, verse 8. And he says, you're losing your distinction as a witness of God's people in the eyes of the surrounding nations. And that is a tragedy. He's saying, you're no different than the people outside. As a matter of fact, you're even worse. And you can always get money back, but you can never get back your witness. And he confronts them, and they go silent. Why? Because they know they're wrong. Now, Paul, he used a similar approach in 1 Corinthians 6, speaking to Christians. I want to read that for you. 1 Corinthians 6, 1, and also read 5 and 6. He says, does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to the law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? I say this to your shame. It is so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren. 
But brother goes to the law with brother, and that before unbelievers? Paul was saying people are taking each other to court instead of seeking wise counsel from, from a fellow brother or sister to help solve the issue, to honor God first. We've become a litigious society. And we will do something that dishonors God to get the buck before we'll honor God first. Now again, Nehemiah makes it plain, the issue, in verse 9. He says, the thing which you're doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of God? That's the issue. They were no longer walking in the fear of God. Now, it's interesting when you read the Bible, and particularly this area of fear, do you understand that the fear of God actually can give us great joy? Sometimes when we think of this idea of the fear of God, we think of terror. Proverbs 28, 14 says, How blessed is the man who fears always, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. It means how happy, how joyful is the man who fears the Lord, who has a right relationship with the living God. And I got to tell you, nothing thrilled Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, the enemies of God, more than seeing the work stop and the people the way they were treating one another. And nothing thrills the enemy of God more today and the people who will cry out the loudest say, see, I told you, when people within the church treat one another in an ungodly way because they no longer fear the Lord. The response of the people when they went silent was deep conviction. And Nehemiah is a good leader, so he calls the people to repentance. And this is something I really want us to get this morning. When he confronted them, he gave them an opportunity to repent. And it starts in verse 10. We might call this real repentance. This is what real repentance looks like. First, you need to determine to stop sinning. If there's something that you know discredits God and some way harms the witness of Christ, verse 10 says, And likewise, I, my brothers, and my servants are lending them money and grain. Please let us leave off this interest or usury. He says, leave it. And the idea is that if God has convicted you of a sin, you're to stop it. When He makes you aware of something, don't put it to the side and say, well, I'll deal with it tomorrow. It's no big deal. It is a big deal. And by His Holy Spirit, He's confronting you on this issue. And He's calling you to action. Determined to stop sinning. Second thing, make specific plans to correct the situation as quickly as possible. Look at verse 11. He says, please give back to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses. Also the hundredth part of the money and of the grain and the new wine and the oil that you're exacting from them. When God shows you a particular sin, He doesn't want you to wait. He wants you to deal with it immediately. Because if you don't deal with it immediately, if you let it just kind of sit and fester, later on you might actually be protecting that same sin. So he calls you to action now. Third thing, declare your plans of actions in a vow and a promise to God. Confess it openly in a vow. Lord, I will turn from that. I want to tell you about vows in God. It's a covenant to Him. And He takes them very, very seriously. And true repentance means that we promise God, I will not sin. With your help, I turn, and I will follow you. And He calls us, have a vow, speak it, 
Nehemiah 5.12, then they said, we will give back and we'll require nothing from them and we'll do exactly as you say. So I called the priests and took an oath from them that they would do according to their promise. Now, the priests were the mediator with God, right? And he says, okay, priests, they're making the oath. If they don't keep their oath, get them. And they're to say it to you what that oath is before God. Last thing, realize the seriousness of the nature of your vow to God. No game. When we make a promise to God, when we repent before the Lord, He wants us to mean it and then live it. Now, it's interesting when you read verse 13, it says, but I also shook out in front my garments and said, thus may God shake out every man from his house and from his possession who, who does not fulfill this promise. Even thus, they may be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and then they praised the Lord. And then the people did according to the promise. When you repent, now you're free to praise, free to worship. They were brought into a time of worship and the people began to worship God. Two things we've seen. The problem, some of God's people took advantage of others because they had no fear. Remedy, repent and walk in the fear of the Lord. Here's the, the last one, the example. Nehemiah's life reflected the walk in the fear of God. Nehemiah's life was an example to them of what it means to walk in holy fear. Remaining verses 14 through 19, Moreover, from that day that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, for 12 years neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten from the governor's food allowance. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants domineered the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also applied myself to the work on this wall, but I did not buy the la any land. And all my servants were gathered there for work. Moreover, there were at my, t at my table 150 Jews and officials besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now that which was prepared for each day was one ox and six choice sheep, also birds were prepared for me, and once in ten days all sorts of wine were furnished in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the governor's food allowance, because the servitude was heavy on this people. Remember me, O oh my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people." It says from that day on, Nehemiah was made the governor. Now, you need to understand, it only took 52 total days to complete this wall. So somewhere in there, it's stalled and this event takes place. And the people, they see the character of Nehemiah. He's a man of integrity. He's a man of his word. He gets the job done. Why? Because he fears the Lord. He has a healthy fear of God, a healthy right worship of God, a good understanding of what it means to honor God with his life. And there are three ways that he displays by his life that he is an example of what it means to have a healthy fear of God. First, he refuses the privileges. Understand that all the governors before him, they exacted money and food from the people. But he didn't do that. He noticed that the people are hurting, they're, they're poor, they don't have means. Now, he's wealthy, which is interesting. The people that were taking the interest and all that, they were wealthy. He's a wealthy man. In fact, he's more wealthy than they are, but what does he do? He gives instead. He has people to his house. He gives food. He's generous. He doesn't take advantage of others. He doesn't take advantage of his position. 
He's a man of integrity. Why? Because he fears the Lord. Second, Nehemiah understood that the first task was to complete the work that God had called him to. That's verse 16. It says, I also applied myself to the work on this wall. I did not buy land and all my servants that were gathered for the work. If you think about it, he's like the construction foreman and then he's made governor. I mean, his work just like tripled. But yet he says, this is what God has called me to. I'll take this position, but I'm going to finish that job. He's faithful. Why? Because he knows God called him to it. God's called me to complete the task. And a holy God, when he calls you to something, he wants you to complete it. And he does it. Third thing, Nehemiah was an example of one who feared the Lord because he treats others with compassion and generosity. Verses 17 through 19, Moreover, there were at my table 150 Jews and officials besides those who came to us from the outside nations. Now that which was prepared for each day was one ox, six choice sheep, also birds were prepared for me. And once in ten days all sorts of wine were furnished in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand a governor's food allowance because of the servitude was heavy on the people. And he says, Remember me, O my God, for good, according to all that I've done for this people. Interesting, when you look at the other people, they were not compassionate. To the point that they're enslaving other people's children. But when you look at him, a man who fears God, what is he? He's compassionate. This is a contrast for us in the Word of God of what it means to follow after the Lord. As God's people today, we're called to honor him with our life because he's deserving of all honor and praise. Now, I want to contrast with Nehemiah in closing Solomon. Now, we know King Solomon. King Solomon was considered, I think, in the Bible, and probably of all time, the richest man who ever lived. If you remember his heart before God, when he was first made king, he was young, inexperienced, and do you remember the prayer he prays before God? I think shaking on his knees, he says, Oh, God, give me wisdom to try to care for this people. And what does God do? God says, oh, you are going to have wisdom and a whole lot more. I'm going to give you a, a wonderful kingdom. You'll have no war during your lifetime and abundant riches, and he has it all. But the tragedy is he lost, he drifted from the fear of God. I want you to hear Chuck Swindoll, what he says in his book about Solomon. He says, listen to this eloquent yet tragic analysis. He said, maddened with love of show, Solomon swung into a feverish career of wastefulness, impropriety, and oppression. Not satisfied with the necessary building and legitimate progress of his past year, he overburdened his people with taxation. He enslaved some, and he ruthlessly instigated the murder of others. All Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and those of his house were of pure gold. The shields of his mighty men were made of beaten gold, and the great throne was made of ivory and overlaid with the finest gold. Solomon, like many another absolute monarchs, drove too fast and traveled too far. The monarch became debauched, an egotist, and a cynic. So satiated with the sensual and material affairs of life, he became skeptical of all good to him and became vanity and vexation of spirit. And if you remember, especially from Second Chronicles, Solomon had over 300 wives and over 700 concubines, and it was the love of women or the lust of women that drove him away from the true and living God. 
where he began to worship idols. He no longer revered God. But let me tell you what the Scripture says in closing for the man or woman who has a reverential awe and worship of God. Proverbs 19.21 says, The fear of the Lord leads to life so that one may sleep satisfied, untouched by evil. You've been sleeping satisfied? God wants us to worship Him in holiness and wonder and awe and reverence. That's what He desires. Let's pray. Father, we turn our hearts to You now, Lord. And Father, my heart for me as well as our people here today, Father, is that we would understand and, and have, God, a, a true reverential awe and worship of You. I pray that our hearts would, would long to know You. I pray that we would be just so grateful for the love of Christ that's been displayed within us and to us. I pray, Father, that You would draw us to You often with holy fear, Lord, but also with holy love. I pray, Lord, that you would open doors for us to serve you, even as Nehemiah did, as people of integrity, people who trust you more than we trust ourselves or anything in this world. Move in power upon us, Lord. Use us for your glory. And I pray that you would receive all honor and praise as you well deserve. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.